welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Lead teacher Randy Pope continues the series, Romans 8, Trusting in God's Sovereignty, with the third part of this message entitled, All Things, which covers Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. For more information and to watch or hear other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. I know every week we have new people with us, and welcome to you. For you that are with us, new, we're in a series. It's called Romans 8, and it's a a four-part series. You can see if the yellow insert, I'm going to encourage you throughout the series to use that, to keep it in hand so you can keep kind of seeing where we are and, and the bigger picture for sure. Uh, four parts. We're in one of the four parts for nine weeks in this series, and we're dealing with the third of the four points that you see under four secrets of a satisfying life, trust in God's sovereignty. And again, I think you can take the chapter eight of Romans, you can break it down under those four headings and get a pretty good picture of what's being discussed and why I would suggest that these are four secrets to a satisfying life. If it would be that we could experience acceptance, rejoice in suffering, trust in God's sovereignty, and rest in in God's security, I think you're going to find a fairly satisfied human being right there. So we're digging into these and trying to figure out exactly what God has to say. I'll ask this of you that have attended already over the past two weeks. Do you see any difference yet? Do you, do you find maybe that uh, you have a, a minor inconvenience? And do you find yourself pausing a moment and not just saying, why and oh my goodness, and, or do you find yourself saying, oh, whoa, 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 all things, all things work together for good. Have you been able to take that period that comes after bad things? Oh, bad things period. Have you been able at all to erase that period and maybe put a little comma and find yourself saying bad things, but working out for good, I know. Are you able to do that? I had somebody that, uh, one person that came up to me uh, after last week, I bumped into this person, we were talking and they said, I just got to tell you, I was was, uh, on a trip to Canada, I was at the airport and and uh, getting ready to make the process to get through and all to, to get a, a flight. And somebody stole my passport. Apparently got it on camera or whatever, but somebody stole their, their passport. And, and this person said, you know, immediately, now this canceled this trip and all the things involved with it and so forth, as you can imagine, when you don't have a passport. And he said, but you know what? All things came to mind, and it made a difference. I hope this will make a difference. I I do want you to know this. This series on Romans 8, if you're new with us, is a very controversial subject matter in the Christian faith. There's a lot of variance in beliefs. We're not here. I keep saying it over and over. We're not here to try to persuade a theological position because we think our position's right. We want more people to hold on to it Just for the sake that it's right, we want you to know it. No, the reason that I'm teaching this is because I want us to benefit from the things we learn in the Word of God that are there to benefit us. 
So hopefully it's beginning to make a difference. Let's read the text. It's three verses. It's very simple in terms of length, but it's very complex in terms of depth. It reads like this. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Now that's the what, but how does that happen? So the next verses say, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So if you take your yellow insert, the big overview is that there are three presuppositions. There are three foundations and there are five chain links. This is the this is the framework in which I'm trying to build the story of the counsel of God found in this text. And so we have to begin with presuppositions. You notice where you see checks on the outline. Those are the areas we've already covered previously in the last two weeks. The fact number one, fully embracing the belief that all things work together for good presupposes that God is sovereign. Number two, that God has a perfect plan and number three, that God engineers an infallible process to execute his perfect plan. And that's what introduces us to what we're calling these five chains that link this chain of salvation. Five chain links. And we just read them in the text. They're very challenging terms. God foreknowing people, what does that mean? God predestining people, God calling people, justifying and, and glorifying. We've got a little bit better understanding of those, but the first three that start them out are just so challenging to figure out. So in light of doing that, we have to be sure that we build a foundation. So last week we talked a lot about foundation, 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 and we move further into the subject matter of God's sovereignty. You notice it says the golden chain can be understood only in light of the Bible's teaching regarding God's sovereignty to begin with. We need one more week, that's this week, to talk about God's sovereignty. We're using a question and answer format to try to focus on the truths of Scripture so that this can come alive to us. We've, uh, we've spent a lot of time, I realize, on God's sovereignty, but you gotta start there. Because if God is not sovereign, just assume he's not sovereign, then all, all this is off. There is no way we're ever gonna say, and all things work together for good because the things that God does control, no, that's not all things. No, he controls all things. That's what sovereignty is. And so we have to make sure we, we put some roots down in this arena and begin to understand, well, what does that mean if he is sovereign? But here's the problem. We've got some questions. Yeah, but if that's what sovereignty means, then what about, what about, what about, what about? Those are the questions that we're trying to address to understand this. Now, before I go further into sovereignty, notice the next two foundations, man's free will, man's fall. Now, you don't know what is gonna be taught on those two subject matters. I do. And, and I'm telling you right now, we get over a huge hump when we get to those two. You better understand what free will is, but the big one to me is the fall. 
Only till we understand truly what happened at the fall will we be able to understand why these five chains, links of the, the chain, could be what we're teaching them to be. And as I'm telling you, I think you're going to see Scripture holistically teaching. That's when it comes alive. Or as I put it this way last week, if I don't teach foundations well, or we skip foundations and say, oh, let's go to the five chain links and let's just discuss these things. Hey, by the way, this is what foreknowledge means. We would be reeling and going, whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm going to tell you this, that's what most of us have heard thus far in our Christian life. Most Christians, if they're ever exposed to the full counsel of God in these areas, they start with the five links of the chain. And they start saying, well, here's the first. You got to know what foreknowledge is. And, and we hear that and we go, whoa, 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 whoa. And we don't have a foundation at all on the sovereignty of God. Or, or the whole idea that we have a free will. Immediately we say, well, I guess man doesn't have a free will. And that doesn't sound right. I, well, it's not right. We don't understand the implications of the fall. That's where it really begins to take shape. So all that to say, hang in there. Don't be discouraged that this is just hard. I can't grasp it. Just hang in there. I'll address that again when we close. Now, let's go to a few more questions. Uh, two questions that we looked at last week, just for a quick review. I'm not going to go teach it again, but number one, first question that we looked at last week, uh, did God foreordain sin or did sin come into the world against his will? Know this, did he foreordain sin? If you were here, the answer would be yes to that. Or did sin come to the world against his will? As if, well, it, it has to be one or the other. No, sin did not come into the, into the world against his, his will. And we talked about permissive will. So just the answer, go back. You can podcast if you'd like to know more about what was said there. Number two, we addressed the second question. If God foreordained sin, does that not make him responsible for man's sin? And the answer to that is no. God in no way coerced, he no, in no way tempted man to sin, so that's not an issue at all. He's not responsible, and we walk through the answer to that one. Now I think we need to pick up with two more questions, and so here's the next question we look at. If God is sovereign, isn't it unfair that he did not assure the salvation of all people? Well, just for a quick answer, no, it's not unfair. That's going to be the answer, but why is it not unfair? Now, we know that he could have assured the salvation of all people. As God, he could have done that. Would we agree? No? Yes? Okay. Come alive. Just a minute. All right. So, yeah. Yes, we, we're going to agree on that one, right? Would we agree that he didn't assure the salvation of all people? And the answer would be yes. Because there are people that perish, and we know that, according to the Word of God. So we know he could have, and we know he didn't. But I'm going to suggest to you that though we know that much, we don't know all things. One thing we have to know this, he is not unjust or unloving because he did not assure the salvation of all people. That's an important note to take. It is not unjust. It is not unloving. You see, if grace is required in order to be fair, it is no longer grace. 
Does that make sense? Well, you have to give me grace. Well, no, it's not grace. If you have to give it, not at all. Sproul, R.C. Sproul, great theologian, in his book, Chosen by God, which so much of everything in this series you, know, will find, you will find so well explained and taught in that book. Uh, but in that book, uh, he makes it really, really clear that the saved, they get grace and they get mercy. Grace, uh, God giving us what we don't deserve. Mercy, not, God not giving us what we don't deserve. The saved get grace and they get mercy. And neither fair nor unfair. It's grace. So it's neither fair nor unfair. But to go on to point out how the lost, what do they get? They get justice. Justice is not unfair. Not at all. Justice is fair. Uh, he suggests that God has four options. Kind of let you see what you think about this. Here's the first of four options. First, that God gave no opportunity for anyone to be saved. All right, number two. God gave an opportunity for all people. Everybody has an opportunity to be saved. Number two. Number three, God assures the salvation for all people. Number four, God assures the salvation for some people while offering salvation to all people. Now, I'm going to leave those up for a minute. Let's just work through them. Now, I'm going to suggest that the vast, vast, vast majority of you, if not everybody here, is going to agree with me that number one and number three are not viable options. If we were to say there's no opportunity for anyone to be saved, then no one has ever been saved. And I don't think anybody that's of the Christian faith believes that. Number three, God assures the salvation of all people. So every person is saved. That's universalism. That's not the Christian faith. So we're going to say, no, we don't believe number three is even a possibility. But I would imagine that most people in the Christian faith who've not really dug into the depth of the, the full counsel of God, as we're calling it. I think they're going to say number two is, is, is the one I opt for. Well, he makes an opportunity for all people to be saved. Now, that would seem very logical and very appropriate unless you build a foundation that gets down to the fall and begin to understand the fall of man. And then you begin to realize that based on the teaching of the Bible about the fall of man, we got a real problem because left to his own, man will always reject God. There's no way that a fallen person can accept God in and of himself by his own desire and will. It's not going to happen. That's what we have to study at great length. You're going to have to hold on to that one. But that's going to be the game changer point right there. I like to think of it this way. What we're doing in this series, what we're doing is we're building, we're building a, a very, very, very big picture of God. Uh, he becomes bigger and bigger and bigger as we see him for who he is. And then in the meanwhile, what happens to us when we get to the fall, we begin to chisel away on some of the stuff we've added to who we are and we find out are not really legitimate. We, we've, we've got a wrong view of ourselves. 
And we begin to see what God has to say and we understand who we are and we see ourselves as, oh, no, 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 I don't, I really don't have, it's not, it's not my ability, I can't do that. And, oh, God, it's all you, you mean you did a whole lot more for me than what I thought you did for me? Well, God, that makes you bigger in my sight and better in my sight and more lovable in my sight. And here it comes, an understanding of grace. Now let's go back to number four, though. On that list, let's go to the four uh, sprawl that we had up there. What really we, I think, are gonna have to land on, I certainly do, I'm certainly teaching this, that he assures the salvation for some people while offering salvation to all people. So would you just kind of take that point not with enough to really embrace or understand it fully, but just to say, okay, that's what we have to figure out. Which of these two are correct, number two or number four? And I think when we began to see what the Bible so clearly is teaching about the condition of man's heart, we're gonna have to find ourselves pushing down to say, I think I've been at number two, but maybe now I'm, I'm maybe seeing the Bible's teaching number four. That's where you're going to find the teaching of Romans 3, that there's no one who seeks God. No, not one. There is none who seek for God. Not even one. Now, to kind of wrap this question up, to be unfair would require God to do one of two things, either to make a promise and not keep it, that's unfair. I think all would agree. Or number two, he'd have to violate his own character in some form or fashion. I'm gonna suggest as you study this question and the issue about the sovereignty of God and all, do you find that anywhere? Has he, has he violated a promise he made? Has he really violated his own character? No. So they wanna take the word unfair, which is a violation of character, and attribute that to God because of what the Bible teaches about him. We wanna say, no, 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 it's not unfair if he does these things. Not at all. Uh, if you were here with us on Saturday night a week ago, I shared this portion. It'll be repetitious. I didn't do it yet last week uh, in the main. Uh, but uh, I think what you have to understand is that what we, what we are actually doing is we're treating God as if he is wrong to treat people differently. Think of that. It's not that he's being unfair it's being that he's treating people differently, and for most of us, that feels unfair. That's why God, in his providence, put in Matthew chapter 20, the story of the landowner. Most of you know the story. He has all of this work to be done on his, on his property, and so he hires somebody in the early morning and says, I'll pay you X amount of money if you'll work all day. And then mid-morning, he hires some more people and says, I'll, I promise you I'll give you X amount. Well, it's the same amount. And at noon, some more at the same amount. And then midday, the same amount. Until at the end of the day when they get paid, what happens? Well, everybody comes together to get their, their money they know how much they've been told they'd make, but when they find out that, that these people are gonna make that much money for just working a few hours and that they're not getting any more money than they got for working many, many hours, they say, well, that's not fair. And his response to that is to say, oh, no, 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 no. 
Did I not do exactly? Did you not want to work? You didn't have to work. You chose to work. Did I not give you what I said I would do? I've not been unfair whatsoever. I use the illustration. Maybe I've used this a few times. I know I do an investigative forum, but maybe you've heard this before if you have an old timer here. But the story of, of my taking my kids out for a date night. I used to rotate nights and we'd, we'd go out and I'd take one child to spend some time with them and so forth. And, and they'd get special treat. It was something they looked forward to. And, and so I'm going out one night with one of my children and the child says at the very end of our time where it's time to go in, hey, can I have some ice cream? And my immediate answer was no, we can't do that. We're about to go inside and we've got to hurry home and you're going to still be you know, licking that ice cream. And the other kids, they're going to go crazy and you know, they're going to say that's not fair and so forth. And all of a sudden I go, oh yeah. So I said, yeah, you can have some ice cream on one condition that you're still eating it when you get home. <laughs> so we go home. Child's got the ice cream licking on it and the other three go, oh, ha, ha. Ice cream, where's our ice cream? I said, well, didn't get you any ice cream. They said, you didn't get us any ice creams? No. Why not? Because I chose not to. That's what? Unfair. Well, of course, they're going to say that's unfair. This is a teaching moment. This is why I'm doing it. And so I say, I say you think that's unfair because I got them, him, him one, and not you? Yeah. I said, okay, we got to figure this out. So I said, all right, I'm the king of the Pope family. We all agree that. I am the king. <laughs> now, Queen Carol needs to confide with King Randy, so, or King Dad, so let's, let's bring her over here. And, and so then the question is this. Uh, Queen Carol, do you know of anything in the, in the law of the Popes that said when one child gets ice cream, all kids get ice cream? She says, No. Have you promised this to, have we promised? No. And I turn to the kids and I say, not unfair. Not unfair at all. Because you think like we all think. And that is that, hey, if you don't treat people exactly the same, you're treating them unfairly. You can do that and be unfair if you violated something you promised you were gonna do. But otherwise, not unfair at all, not at all. You might go home on this Lord's day as you read scripture. Go to Matthew 20 and read the text. See if it doesn't hit you pretty hard that, wow, yeah, he's addressing this issue that we claim unfairness when it's really just difference and the difference not being unfair at all. Let's look at one final question and that's number four. Number four question is, why did God not choose to save all people? Well, that's a good one. Uh, we get a bit of the answer, by the way, in Romans 9 and verse 23, where it says, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Now, I'm, I'm intentionally holding off of taking you to Romans 9 because I don't think Romans 9 should be read, ever be read without reading Romans 8. And I'll tell you this, if you read Romans 9 without understanding Romans 8, you're going to reject Romans 9. But when you begin to see Romans 8, you go, oh, now Romans 9 makes sense. But there is that one little verse, I think, that really addresses the answer to why. He did so to make known the riches of his glory 
hear that, the rich of his glory upon vessels of mercy. Now beyond this, I'm gonna suggest we don't know the answer to the question. And I'm not just a cop out, I just don't know. But I want you to know this, we have to, as I said week one, remember dot, we've got to keep coming back. We cannot understand everything and certainly should never say, because I can't understand it, therefore it's not true, it can't happen, it shouldn't be. We don't want to go there. We want to dig and say, is there contradiction here somewhere? Is there wrongdoing that we have seen by the work of God because he did this? That's what we have to figure out. Beyond that, we just don't. Carol and I, we, we have often had this discussion. I know one discussion where a, a, a good while back where something happened and I had to say, why? Why did God, why would God do that? Because I don't know the answer. And I can say, and because he did and I don't have an answer, it's wrong. Or I can say, I know that, I know God has his plan and his way but I certainly don't get it. So please, don't think you're the unique person who can't figure out why God, no, we don't know why God does things. But it's a similar question to, to these questions. Well, why did God create Satan? Now, first of all, I wanna to say to that one, he didn't create Satan as we know Satan. He created the angel that became the one we know as Satan in his evilness, just like God created a a non-fallen individual in Adam and Eve, or individuals, who then fall, but not to say he created them fallen. He did not do that. So you say, well, all right, then how about this one? Why does he allow sin? Because you know he does allow sin. And the answer is, I know he does, of course. I think the first thing to always consider when you ever hear the word God and why, you wanna ask this, the purpose of God. The purpose that God does all things. Now, if you've been around a, a, a biblical teaching for any long time period, at some point you've come across to understand why God does all things. It's what I've in this church over and over said to parents. Parents, if you want to give your children the best chance for a good foundation biblically, you better teach them this one thing that God does all things for his own what? Glory. You missed that one? Okay, everything's off the table. Now what do we do? Everything's just up for random. No, 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 he does all things for his glory. Now how does that bring him glory? That's another question. We don't know necessarily in all ways how he does, but that's the faith of the believer. And anybody says, well, you know, that's your problem. You have faith to do it. Let me tell you, if you're a seeker here and you challenge with, we have faith, you do too. You have faith that God didn't do it. So there's, we're all presuming upon things that we believe for reason or not, non-reasons. So here's the whole big question. We come back to this thing about, okay, purpose. Well, you're telling me that he does everything for his own glory? Yes, he does for his own glory. So then we go back, to, okay, then why does he allow sin? And I say, for his own glory. And then the question, explain how that could be for his glory as if it couldn't be for his glory. Now, I don't have a biblical story or a text to go to, but here's my thinking. If I could come to something rationally and give an answer to why I could personally see that this would bring him glory to allow sin, 
then I know on that, remember the big, the big chalkboard illustration, the dot, that somewhere out there, there certainly can be many, 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 many good reasons that I'll never comprehend. But if I can actually see a good reason, then that tells me for sure, don't challenge God that it's not appropriate. So here's how I would respond. If you just ask me my personal, come up with your own reason. Here be the reason. If you had a friend and your friend was absolutely the most brilliant, talented, incredible person you have ever, ever, ever met, been around. Talented in every arena, academic, uh, athletically, was the best in the country in every this, every this, every that. I mean, that person would be getting applause all the time. And we want to be around that person to say, hey, I'm, I'm friends with them. I mean, look, oh, wow, wow, wow. You know we'd do that. We, hey, can I get an autograph from you? Oh, can I get a picture with you? Hey, I got a picture with so-and-so. We're just giving them glory. We're saying, look how, look how magnificent this person is, and I'm, I got close to them. Well, that's what we do. We're giving them glory. Appropriately or not, we're giving them glory. Now, let's imagine that there is another friend, and another friend can match that person, I mean, in every capacity, even. However, this person does something for you that the first person does not. When you have done something incredibly wrong and bad, and this person has every reason to hate you for what you did, and instead this person shows you grace, shows you mercy, and shows you forgiveness, which one of the two would you applaud the biggest? you would applaud the second. Let's take God. You take the person of God. If God had never shown mercy, never shown grace, and never shown forgiveness, which would not be needed were there no sin, if he had never done those things, never, tell me this, would God still be a God of grace mercy, and forgiveness? What do you think? Sure he would be. That's in who he is. Here's the thing, though. We would never know him as a God of forgiveness because we would have never seen it. We would have never experienced it. We wouldn't know him as a God of mercy. We wouldn't know him as a God of grace. We wouldn't know him of any of those things. Oh, he would be, but we would never know that. So through eternity, which is gonna bring him the greater glory? The presence of sin or the absence of sin? And we have to say, brings him glory. I know some people will say, that's the problem I have with God. Uh, some of us here are seekers. Let's, let's say, well, that's the problem I have with God. Because God is just, he is selfish. And I say to that, absolutely he's selfish. He is the one and only that can be selfish without being sinful. Because he's sinlessly selfish appropriately. He's bringing glory to himself because he's God. So until we began to get that picture, then we see things a little differently. So all that to say, is it 
why God didn't choose people or why he didn't save all people? Uh, we don't know for sure the reason. But I bet you this, in eternity we'll see it clearer that he did it for his own glory. And I think when you begin to read Romans 9 a little deeper, and if you're new to this subject matter, I'm gonna even encourage you, I've never encouraged somebody, don't read the Bible. But I'm gonna say don't read chapter nine. Not yet. Wait till we finish chapter eight. And then let's go to chapter nine. So, enough brain stretching today, all right? I want to, um, I want to just tell you where we're going. Uh, this next week, uh, Jeff is going to preach next week outside the series. Uh, we're going to be at our general assembly this next week. Pray for that in Dallas. I'll be at another church this next weekend. And then come back the following week, and we're going to look at man's free will. And then the next in the series, we'll look at the fall. And then we'll turn the corner and start looking at the five chain links. So next week, here are a couple of questions that we're going to look at. We'll look at the first, can God be sovereign over man and man still have a free will? Number two, don't all people have the free will to choose or to reject Jesus? Now, let me conclude, and then we'll go to the table. I'm gonna keep saying this just over and over. I got to keep saying this. In different ways, I'll try to say it. Why is this so important? Because if we get off track on that one, oh, this becomes a wrong and bad thing. Why is it so important? Let me suggest first, because it is this that's gonna take us to a new understanding and appreciation and love of grace. Grace will come alive. You see, it's through this sort of truth that we begin to wake up in the morning and we fall to our knees and we say, God, you did it all. Whereas before this kind of teaching, it's kind of you did a lot and I did some and I, you know, I'm thankful and it means a lot. But all of a sudden we say, God, look, you, you did everything. I, I was incapable. I didn't, in my fallen condition, I couldn't. And look what you did. You had to go so far as to, to foreknow me and to, and to predestine me. And then you had to call me. And this is while I am dead without any a capability. Oh God, look, look what you have done for me. The grandeur of God's love gets so great. It just keeps growing and growing. The gospel, the good news, just gets to be better and better news. That's when grace comes alive. And I'm telling you, to the degree you marry to grace and understand grace, that's when you begin to see the incredible God that we have. I'm going to suggest number two, it's going to birth within us a humility that would not be there otherwise. I talked to a man just yesterday. He said, you know, when I came to grips with the truths uh, that you're teaching right now, boy, did I become arrogant. I felt like I knew something that other people didn't know. I, I began to try to push myself on people and argue that, that I'm right. And oh, let me tell you, I've lived through that through graduate school of theology for three years when I was in graduate school. Oh my goodness, the truths people were grabbing and they go, ah! Oh! I'm gonna talk more about that in the last week as I give some counsel at the end. But I'm telling you, not till you really grasp this 
with an understanding, a full understanding. You get a partial understanding of this and ah, no, 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 no. It's gonna birth a humility in you and in me. And what it's gonna do, it's it's gonna cause us to view the loss differently. We will not find ourselves saying, why didn't you come to God like I did? Can you not see this? Do you not understand? Is it not clear? What's wrong with you? Those things go away. And in light of that is a, is a new humility. I think there's a new motivation for obedience. Something happens about our obedience. Now it's not just merely a commitment, but it's, a, it's a, an appreciation. And this is when you know you're getting it because selective obedience begins to dissipate. Instead of being like so many Christians today, oh, I wouldn't murder, why? Because it's wrong. Well, I'll live with him or I'll live with her outside of marriage. I love the Lord, I'm following the Lord, but, well, but what does the scripture say? Well, I know it's wrong, but you know, that's kind of something I'm kind of missing on a little bit and I really need to kind of, I need to work on it. That's selective obedience. It's selective obedience. And so why does that come? In great part, because we really don't understand the beauty of God's love. And that's why I keep every week pushing you to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, to the cross, saying, get a glimpse of his love, get a glimpse of his love, because it's love that transforms. Folks, we gotta go beyond. Jesus loves me, this I know. Only then will we replace the period with a comma Only then will we say there's good news regarding the bad news. Only then will we quit saying bad news, therefore unfair, God. Why did you do that? We got to to go beyond that simple statement. We got to know that he loved us enough to foreknow us and everything that comes after that. Hopefully, you're going to be like a, a, a flowering, a flower that's budding, and it comes that time, we're driving in our, our driveway the other day and Carol looks at a, what looks to be a kind of an ugly bush. And she says, oh, look, it's getting ready. That's the one that has those beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. And I go, oh, it needs them. <laughs> it's, just, it's just sitting there right now. No, those little white things, they're gonna turn. They're gonna, they're gonna be beautiful. And that's how I wanna picture this congregation. That right now, it looks a little, you know, I don't know. But something's going to happen and pop. And all of a sudden, you're going to live life, not with a period, but with a comma. And you're going to start saying all things. All things work together for good. I don't understand God's ways, but I know this. What is bad is not unfair. And I know this. There is good news in the bad news. So don't leave here saying, I'm just not getting this. I don't, you're getting more than you know. You're getting more than you know. Let it build week after week after week. And let's see if that flower doesn't pop, okay? Now we're gonna go to the table. Before I pray to prepare us for that table, I do want to say this. Know that the table that we're about to take is to take the very truths of who God is and, and massage them into our hearts. And we're gonna marinate in the truth, so to speak, for just a few minutes here. And I want us to take the content that we've been talking about 
And that's what I want us to, to sit in for a moment. I want you to know that this is two things. It is a remembrance and it is a proclamation. As a remembrance, it is really our motivation by remembering. It really motivates us to follow the covenant we have with God when we remember what he's done for us. It's when I say, go to the cross, remember what he's done, go to the cross. Well, this is the way we get to go and, and actually take the blood of the cross, figuratively speaking, but to take the blood of the cross and say, okay, I wanna see it, I wanna think about it, I wanna, I wanna use my taste, I wanna use my smell, I wanna use my sight, I wanna use the senses that I have to, to make that truth just come alive a little bit further for me. And so it is a, it's a motivation. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 25 puts it this way. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. And once again, he says, in remembrance of me. So if you've been around here, you've heard me say this uh, uh, hundreds of times over the years. If you're new with us, here's what I like to do. If I'm gonna remember, I have to get my mind and my emotion and my will engaged. So in my mind, what I wanna do is spend 30 seconds, a minute in the quiet that I have. I wanna start and remember the cross. There it's in the mind. Picture what happened on that day. And then I want to go a step further and I want to say, oh, I want to, I want to relive the anguish. And so I, I want to start thinking that, hey, all that pain and suffering he took was so that I wouldn't take the pain and suffering for all eternity. Oh, wow, God, you had to hurt because of what I did? You wouldn't have to hurt without what I did? Oh. And then you go just a little step further and now it engages the will. And now at this point, you recommit to your vows and say, I made a vow when I said I'd follow you, Jesus. There's nothing wrong with me just recommitting to that vow. And where I've gotten away from that vow, I'm sorry, but I want to come back and I want to, I want to engage fully. I don't want selective obedience. I want obedience. So God, that's my intention. It's not my promise of purity and wholeness without sin. It won't happen. But God, that's my intention. And that's what begins to happen in the quiet of just a few minutes. Now, I do that. You know what happens? And I go, God, how can I be talking to you right now and be thinking about something so other? Forgive me. And I try to come back. So live with it. It's going to be a challenge. We're broken people. But the more you can do these things and remember, the better it is. But then it's also a proclamation. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so it is a proclamation. So this is a responsibility to proclaim. Proclaim what? We proclaim in our faith. Said, folks, this whole thing is about the death of Jesus. Had he not died, certainly he has to rise again and all. But here's the, here's the crux of it. He died for us. And therefore, uh, that's got to be a proclamation in my own mind and heart every day. I proclaim it to other people. That's, that's my responsibility to live in light of this truth. And we call it a proclamation. It is followed by a warning in verse 27 and following. It says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But, man, but a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. 
For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Now, what he's doing is he's just saying not, hey, don't come to the table if you don't have it together. He's saying, no, you come to the table because you don't have it together. But if you're coming to the table in a way to say, I'm not going to follow Jesus. Uh, it's not my intention to make, renew my covenant. Uh, that's not where I am right now. He says, either get to that place or don't come to the table. It won't do you any good. In fact, it can hurt you. And if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you certainly wouldn't come to the table. Uh, and by the way, the only way that in the church historic and the way we see the Bible teaching, and I taught this in a series recently, is that if you're not under the authority of a church, under a covenant relationship with a church, then this is only for the people of the church. And you need to be a follower under the authority of a church. Doesn't mean you can't be a follower without being under the authority of the church. But you don't get the table of the church, of Jesus' church, until you're under its authority. So if you're not truly a member of a true church, don't have to be here, but a true biblical church, you're under their authority, made a vow to do such, then, then I would hold off. And we've got a, a new membership class starting in just two weeks. And so I would encourage you, let that be your next step. Say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get to this table really soon. And go ahead and come to that place. So with that, I'm gonna invite that the officers would come forward and prepare as I pray and let you prepare your hearts and my heart uh, they'll prepare the table, and then we'll give it to you, all right? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we bow now and want to come to the table and want this to be a really special meal. As brief as it is, as little understood for most of us that it might be, I pray that there may be power just in the idea of the remembrance that takes place in the proclamation. I, I pray that you would uh, let us have a, a sense of mind, emotion, and will of how this all impacts us. So I just pray, we wanna now ask you to forgive us for any sin that would hinder us from being able to worship you well at the table. And for those of us that can't come to the table, Lord, use this as a time to get us ready and prepared one day soon to be just right here. And I thank you, Father, for the many that need this table because of weakness and struggle and pain and heartache and just need to come be reminded of your great love right now. Would you, would you show us that even at the table in these few minutes? So prepare our hearts now as we now give this table to you and say thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. The officers will, the elders will uh, come and, and give the, the table to you. They'll pass it to you and you'll find a, a stacked cup format. It may be new for some of you that are with us, uh, but the top cup obviously is gonna have the drink uh, representing the the, the blood of Christ. And then the bottom cup is a wafer, which will represent the, the uh, body of Christ. And so you take it, and in your prayer time, take the bread whenever you're ready. That will be on your own. And there'll be time for prayer and all before or after you get your, your, um, your cups. And, and then you be with the Lord during that time. And then hold the drink, and I'll come back and in the various venues that are, that are watching this now. Uh, you'll, uh, you'll have someone come back and you'll take the cup together at that time. So now, enjoy your time with the Lord. This is just a little meal, but it's a special one. I hope you find it to be so, so meaningful. The Lord said, as he took the bread, 
This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and let's eat. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.